First Timothy. Thank you. Does anybody else here suffer from seasonal allergies? I'm finding that it's every season I'm allergic to. Anybody else? Oh, well. First Timothy. I have to tell you that this is not the first time I've taught through this. Not to raise your expectation, but to uh, let you know that, you know, God's word is not only important, but it's also able to feed us multiple times. It's not like a meal where you eat it once and then you're hungry later. It's a meal that you can eat once and then you can come back later and eat a little bit more and eat a little bit more and there's no shelf life on it. And so uh, the things that I learned from the book of First Timothy the first time that I taught through it are definitely things that have stuck with me, but they're also things that can be kind of chewed on again and taken in. And, and so um, as we look at Paul's first letter to Timothy, um, we need to know who the author is, right? And I already kind of gave it away. It's Paul. He wrote this letter to uh, his son in the faith. Um, now, many of us have sons, uh, but how many of us have sons in the faith? So Paul writes to this young man that he not only wants to invest in and encourage because he's his physical son, but because he's his spiritual son. He's a, someone who's going to take the things that God has shown him and impart to another believer in the hopes that the faith that he has believed and, and tested and trusted and lived in won't die with him. He's going to leave a legacy. He's going to leave a memorial, uh, but not a dead memorial, one that will last and so as Paul writes this letter to Timothy, he writes it to encourage and instruct his son in the faith. And as believers, um, one of the signs that we are healthy in our faith is that we reproduce. And uh, when God created the trees and the plants and the animals, he said over and over again, he used this phrase in Genesis that each one produced after their kind. And no doubt, as human beings, we reproduce after our kind, right? Right? Uh, we reproduce children out of our marriages. And so as a result of that, um, we can see that even in creation, plants and animals, they reproduce after their kind. You don't have a, even in the plant kingdom, you don't have an apple tree where the apple falls into the ground and produces an orange plant or an orange tree. Uh, so the idea is we do reproduce after our kind. So wisdom, Jesus said, is justified by all her fruit. And the fruit that comes from our life is really based upon the wisdom that we have. And so Paul is investing the things that he's learned from God himself and from other believers. He's pouring them into another individual so that he will reproduce after his kind, a Christian leader. And so here he has this young man by the name of Timothy, who is a young pastor at the church that had been established in Ephesus, and we're going to learn a little bit more about that. But what I want to point out is that when you invest in someone, you talk about them. Uh, talk to any mom that spent time taking care of her kids, and she's talking about her kids all the time. There's one lady at work, she's got um, uh, at least one, maybe two grandchildren, and she'll ask me about my kids, but really it's just as a lead-in so she can talk about her kids and her grandkids. And that's right. I mean, it's just natural. Whoever we invest in, whoever we pour into, we're talking about them. Well, 
Paul had invested in Timothy heavily, and I would submit to you, we can tell that, not just based on the fact that he's writing to someone he calls his son in the faith, but actually he writes 13 of the letters in the New Testament, and in 10 of them he mentions Timothy. He mentions Timothy, and many times he's mentioning him as someone who is like in faith, like no one else, a son in the faith, someone who is like him in the way that he follows Jesus. Um, and actually, in, a, in Philippians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, he writes, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But in verse, um, sorry, in verse 19, he says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy, Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know about your state. For I have no one who is like-minded. In other words, I have no one else who is as, as, as I am, no one like me, who has the same care for the churches as this young man, Timothy, who will sincerely care for your state. Because all seek their own, and not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. He served with him as, as someone who was closer than even if Paul had had a son, he, he served with him closely. And so uh, Paul has taken a special interest in this young man. And as believers, I think it's important that we would take a special interest in at least one person and be able to pour into them the things that God's shown us. Everyone needs to be a Paul as a disciple, and everybody needs to be a Timothy to somebody. And so let me ask you this morning, does anyone, do you have someone specifically that you would say, yeah, that's my Paul? And if you don't, go find one. If they haven't found you yet, go looking for someone who's even just a, a minute older than you in the faith that you can lean upon and ask questions because that's how we grow. But at the same time, do you have a Timothy? Do you have someone in your life that God has placed there that's younger than you in the faith that you can even just teach a little bit to. You don't have to be light years ahead of them. You just have to be a little bit further ahead of them because you cannot lead anyone anywhere where you've never walked. If you go on a hike and you've never been that way before, it's probably not a good idea to lead anyone on that hike. Several years back, I was in the Boy Scouts and we were camping down, um, what camp it was it? I want to say it was Johnson shut-ins before it got destroyed by the, the levee or the dam breaking. But it was a Johnson shut-ins, and there was a group of men that were going to take a, I think it was a 12-mile hike on the Tom Sock Trail. If any of you have ever hiked on the Tom Sock Trail, um, it is not well marked. And if you've not been on it before, you should not lead people on it because you will get lost, and they did. And about dark, we started getting nervous because we had a few of our guys with the group. Now, they came back well after dark, but my point is um, they needed a leader who knew the trail well, and as people of God, we need to know the trail well, even if it's just a little bit further along than the people that we would seek or look for an opportunity to invest in. And one of the commandments that, that Jesus gave us, the great commission, he commissioned us as believers to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to leave the country to go make disciples. It, it means literally, as you are going, make disciples. 
And so Paul took this seriously, and he, he did this. So um, that said, in verse 1, he begins his greeting. He's writing to Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. I think that's a very important to, distinction that he points out to Timothy. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, to anyone really who would read the letter, by the commandment of God our Savior. He's, he's telling Timothy, he's telling anyone who would read this, I don't get my authority just because of who I am. I get my authority because of who God has called me to be. And as a result of that, it's by his commandment and his authority that I have any authority at all. That's the only reason. Why would we read Paul's letters and teach them as, as God's word? Because God had called him, he had commanded him, and, uh, and, and Jesus is our hope. So he surrendered over, under Jesus' authority, and under his authority we're able to learn. So verse 2, he says, To Timothy, a true son in the faith. He again calls him son. He says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. So before we jump ahead, there are just a few letters where he, he, he many times in his letters, he says grace and peace. Grace being the, the Greek word charis, which means favor or kindness. Um, grace, which means favor specifically from God. But in the Greek culture, if you were walking along a path and someone were to see you, they, would, they might say to you, grace to you or peace, favor. May you have favor along your day. And it was just a kind greeting. It would be like, hey, how's it going? Going pretty good. Except they would say, grace to you. It would be a blessing, essentially. But the other thing that would be said would be peace, shalom. That's the Hebrew word, a peace to you. Shalom, my friend. You go to Israel. That's what they say, shalom, my friend. And that, that was the idea of the peace of God towards you. So, he says grace and peace, and then he says mercy, and that is the word elios, and the word literally means pity or compassion. And so if you think about these three things that essentially Paul is speaking a blessing over Timothy, he says, here's this letter, but before I say anything in this letter, I want to express to you my main intent is to give you grace, peace, and mercy. But what we need to remember in those three, maybe you'd call them $1 words, they're not long words, right? But there's a lot of meaning in them, is essentially he's, he's wishing for Timothy more of Jesus. Because if you look at the word grace, it means kindness, it means favor. But in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, using that word kindness, that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads man to repentance, it leads man to realize that he is nothing in and of himself, and he does not deserve the goodness of God. But God has shown his favor towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the sinner, for the ungodly, for the pagan, for the people who were far off from God, for the people that were at war with God in their sins and trespasses. He's offered grace, but grace costed God. Grace is God's riches, at Christ's expense. If you want to remember, you know, G-R-A-C-E, the word grace is an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. So in order to give us grace, 
Jesus first had to die in our place, and that's where mercy comes in. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, but mercy, Elios, is not getting what you do deserve. You know, there is no man who is good, no, not one. That's what the Bible teaches. But uh, mercy is um, pity or compassion. And, um, you know, we think of mercy, we think of a, a judge, you know, if somebody's pleading their cause and saying, show me mercy, they're saying, hey, don't give me what I, I know I'm guilty. Be merciful. They're crying out for the mercy of the court. And in the same way, there are many who will be in the courtroom of the Lord at the great white throne judgment who will say, give me mercy. And they'll say, uh, God will say, I offered you mercy in Jesus Christ and you rejected it. So the mercy of God shown in Jesus. But the opposite of mercy is justice. Now, how many of us, if we got a traffic ticket, we're driving down the road, we are speeding, we would say, hey, you know what, Mr. Officer, please give me justice. No, we'd say, show mercy. I didn't know I was speeding. I'm not from here. All the excuses we come up with. But the idea is when we ask for justice, many times we ask it for ourselves. But if someone else were to sin against us, maybe someone breaks into your house and steals some things that are very valuable to you. No one cries out for justice for that guy. But the reality is, is that Jesus, when he ascended on high, he went to the right hand of the Father. He's not praying for justice for you and I. He's praying for mercy. And I love this because if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 9, in verse 35, we see that God's mercy isn't just compassion. Mercy means compassion that leads to action. Compassion that leads to the person doing something to deal with the mercy needed. So in John chapter 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And then verse 36 says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered. They were like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see, the multitude that Jesus was looking at, he was having compassion on them, not because they were good people, but because they were his people. He was having compassion on them. They were all wandering. That doesn't mean that they were literally standing out in a field all wandering in different directions. What do we do? You know, like bouncing into each other. It meant that he looked down upon them, and like Isaiah chapter 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own ways, but the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And by his stripes, by his taking our punishment, we are made well, we are healed. And so we see Jesus in all of these characteristics, grace, mercy, and then lest we jump over it, the word peace. Shalom. And, and many times people struggle, and I myself am one of those people, we struggle with peace because this life that we live in is not often peaceful. There might be a few moments a day where we're like, hey, this is it right here. 
This morning, I got up at my usual time on Sunday. I got up at 6, which was 5, but for a normal Monday, it would be 5 anyway. So I'm just up at my work time, and I wanted to spend time with the Lord because I wanted peace getting ready to teach because whether you guys think it or not, I get nervous every week. And my stomach gets upset. So if you get up on a Sunday morning and you're like, I don't know who I need to pray for, pray for me. Because every Sunday morning, my stomach turns itself in knots because I want to teach what God wants me to teach, but there's all these other things that try to distract me from that. It's a war. It's a battle. I don't say that to to get pity from you. I just say that because I can always use more prayer. But as we look at this passage, he says, grace, mercy, and peace. Young Timothy's a minister like me. And he's got things that God's called him to do. He lives in Ephesus, which is not a 2,000 people town like we live in, or whatever the number is. He lives in Ephesus, which is more like Chicago or New York. It is a very large city, and he is called to preach the word of God, and they are very progressive. It is not comfortable to preach Bible Belt values in Ephesus. But he has to remain faithful, not to yield to the pressures Peer pressure is a very real thing, whether you're a pastor or whether you're a disciple or whether you're in the world. It's a real thing. It affects you. causes you to want to maybe consider, like, dulling it down a little bit. So Paul writes to Timothy, a young minister. uh, I still consider myself pretty young, so a young man like me. I just had a birthday yesterday, but I'm holding on. And many of you would say, you are young, so be quiet. That's okay. But in my mind, I'm still 20, so there you go. Um, But that was a while ago. But Timothy is a young man. And he's been called to hold the line spiritually in Ephesus. And uh, he's not uh, a big strong dude. He's not the Incredible Hulk. He doesn't just get in there, go in there and start throwing elbows and say, you're going to do what I say. He's got to lead like Jesus as a servant. And yet he's got to hold the line. And so peace is peace of mind. And everyone I know wants peace of mind. But it does, does not come from where you think it does. Peace of mind does not come from the ideal situ- living situation. Peace of mind doesn't come from the J-O-B that you've always wanted. Peace of mind does not come from having just the perfect wife. There isn't one. Or the perfect husband. There isn't one. Peace of mind doesn't come from any of the things that we seek for it in many times. Peace of mind comes from peace with God. And peace with God cannot be had without a relationship with Jesus. Um, So I have for you in the notes there, peace with God leads to the peace of God. And if you know this, you know this probably. Many of you have this verse up in your homes possibly in Philippians chapter 4. Because Paul writes to the Philippians who do not have material wealth, who do not have the perfect living situations, They don't have anything else to put their hope in. And what did Paul write at the beginning of this letter? He said, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who is our hope. And so he says there in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing. How many of us are good at that? Yeah, I'm not either. Be anxious for nothing. If anything, I'm anxious about most things. But he says, be anxious for nothing, but he doesn't leave us with an instruction that we can't handle he says be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication notice this with thanksgiving giving thanks to god let your request be made known to god 
And as a result of that, the peace of God, that doesn't make any sense, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your heart and mind. Think about that. Peace guards. Now you think about any nation living in a time of, time of peace doesn't really need guards, right? That's, that's the ultimate. Like, remember the days where you let your kids run around until the streetlight came on and then they came in? You didn't ever really lock the doors? You know, Andy Griffith type stuff. There was stuff going on then, I guarantee it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had Andy Griffith as sheriff. They had problems too, right? Uh, but we do live in a different day and age. So what guards our hearts and our minds? Is it our guns? We can use our guns to guard, right? I don't think it's unwise to have, we have that right. Um, but does that necessarily give us peace? Uh, many times, people that have the guns, they're doing it because they got no peace and they're afraid. They're, you know, that's not, I'm not saying that's always the case. But I am saying that as Christians, we have something better to guard. We have the peace of God to guard. Peace guards our hearts and minds. And who is peace? Not what is peace, but who is peace? It's Jesus. And so uh, Paul has written about this in Philippians. So justice has been served on Jesus in our place, and now we have peace with God, though we were his enemies. See, the lack of peace comes from the fact that we were enemies with God. When you sin against God, you essentially declare war on him. You say, your ways aren't good enough, and he says, well, then you're against me. If you're not for me, you're against me. But uh, as a result of his taking our punishment on the cross, we are given peace with God that leads to the possibility of having our hearts guarded by the peace of God. Okay, so grace, mercy, and peace to Timothy means he's just wishing for more of Jesus and the reality of Jesus to be guarding his heart and be the, the emphasis, the thing that pushes him to live the way that he does. So in verse 3 through 7, we continue. He says... Um, as I urged you before when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. He says, now the purpose, the reason I'm saying this of this commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some have stri having strayed have turned aside to idle babbling, some of your translations might say, to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And so he says to Timothy, he says, uh, I know things are hard in Ephesus. I was there. I planted the church there. But he says, I urge you, just like I did when I went into Macedonia, that you stay in Ephesus. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when things get hard in my life, my, there's the, the fight or flight instinct, right? We either want to fight against the thing that makes it hard, or we want to leave. I mean, in our day and age, if your boss says something, and I'm, I'm the same, by the way, if your boss says something crass to you, everything in you goes, I'm out. Like, I'm done with this. I am tired of putting up with his malarkey. We want to fight we don't want to fight we want to flight and and as a result of that we sometimes end up fighting uh, but the point is he says i urged you timothy 
when I left Ephesus to go into Macedonia, this is on his third missionary journey, he left, and he left young Timothy in charge. Imagine, if you will, you know, you got somebody at your business, and you're the boss, and he's for years kind of been grooming you to, to run the place, and then he leaves. He doesn't, there's no email, there's no phone calls to check in, there's no any of that. He leaves and goes to another country and says, good luck, we'll see you, hope it goes well. And then he leaves. Okay, and uh, now all of a sudden you feel like you're surrounded, you're, you're like a little kid in the woods surrounded by wolves. Uh, this happened to me one time, I've shared with you before, I was hunting and I was sitting on a point and I was squirrel hunting. And my dad left me out there with my Marlin 22 rifle. It has a scope on it, a single shot, a little bolt action. The thing's about this short, so it's still too long for me. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting on a little hunting seat, and I'm probably about, I don't know, eight years old. I don't know if it was legal or not, but this is what we did. So I'm sitting on the seat by myself. I got my orange on, sitting in the woods. There's not deer season or turkey season, and uh, I'm, I'm watching for squirrels. And Dad says, when it gets dark enough you can't see, come back. And I'm like, am I supposed to do that? But okay. So I sit there, and I'm thinking... And of course, you got a lot of time to think, and then it starts getting darker, and then it starts getting darker, and Dad's gone. Now, he's within shouting distance, because our, really, our house, in hindsight, is probably an eighth of a mile away, but when you're my age, at eight years old, it feels like he went to the Sahara, and you're stuck out here in the middle of the ocean. And so, uh, I'm sitting there, I've got my single shot 22, I'm ready, because I am a predator at this point, right? I'm a predator, I'm going to go get me some meat except some bigger predators came in. Yeah, it, what came in was not squirrels. Uh, it was coyotes. And there was like six of them, and I had my Barney 5-1 bullet. So I'm sitting there going, how do I turn the safety off? Will this even kill them? Is it just going to make them angry? You know, like, I'm just sitting there, and they're, they're coming in. I don't know if they see me, but I guarantee they smell me, because they can smell forever. And... Uh, Anyway, I don't remember exactly what happened after that. <laughs> I shot at one of them, but I think that they just kind of all scattered. They're like, well, what is that? You know, they were not afraid of me by any means. Um, but my point is, uh, that's probably how Timothy felt. He was kind of left in the middle of the woods with a single shot twenty-two, And what Paul's going to remind him is, you haven't been left with a single shot twenty-two. You've been left with the Holy Spirit. And another word for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is dunamos, where we get our word dynamite from. You've been left with the authority of heaven inside of you. And his word is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. So don't be afraid. Remain in Ephesus. So he says, um, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And the word doctrine is just a, a $5 word for um, good teaching. He says, don't give heed to fables and endless genealogies, uh, fables and genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. And you know this, if you were raised in church, I was not, but I hear, and I've also been introduced to, uh, when you're raised in formal church, sometimes uh, fables and endless genealogies, I've gone to this church for the last 200 years, whatever, but there's also fables, you know, I believe that, well, you know, the Bible teaches, and it's like not something the Bible teaches, but people are like laying down their life for the cause on this thing, 
Like, we have to have pews and a piano, because otherwise Jesus can't be worshipped. And churches, you know, we laugh about it because we, we're kind of on the other side of the fence on that, but churches split and break up over things like that. Now, we on the other side could be very easily tempted to go, well, Jesus can't be worshipped unless it's simple and it's real. And you got a guy with a beard, you know, but, or, or whatever your thing is. You, you could get caught up on something that isn't the main thing and end up dying for something. We die on hills that don't matter. And then many times us that die on hills that don't matter don't actually know what hills do matter. And so Paul writes to Timothy, he says, don't even listen to fables and endless genealogies. I got no time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. He says, don't worry about those things. Don't listen to them. Don't give heed. What does it mean to give heed? Don't listen to them and don't let them have a, an effect on you. Don't spend your time on it. There are more important things. These things, how will you know if you're giving heed to something that's a fable or something that's an endless genealogy? Well, the result of it will be disputes rather than godly edification, which is another $5 word that means strengthening. Godly strengthening, building up in the faith, they'll actually tear you down. He says, now the purpose of the commandment, the reason I'm telling you this, is because love from a pure heart is our goal. Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed and they've turned aside to idle talk. And so the consequences, see, as a, as a church, and really you can think about this in your own life, because we're all individual pieces of the church, we do need to let God sow his seed in our heart, the word of God. And we do need to let people water us and pour into us. But we also have to realize, it's getting ready to be spring, that when you're gardening, you do have to put seeds in there. If you don't do that, nothing's going to grow. Uh, some stuff will grow, but it won't be what you're trying to grow. And you do have to water it, otherwise it will die, it will shrivel up. But what else pops up when you plant a garden for flowers? Weeds. And what do weeds do? They choke out the fruit. The plants will still grow, but the weeds eventually will grow quicker. They don't produce anything. They're worthless, and they will choke out all the nutrients. And so we as believers are responsible to weed our lives, and we're responsible to weed our children's lives. And as Paul is talking to Timothy, he's saying, Weed your life, Timothy, and weed the life of the church, because if you don't pull the weeds, the weeds will grow better, and the church will die. It will kill, and there might be a little bit of a semblance of life, but there won't be any fruit. And so he tells them this. So, consequences of weeds will be pointless arguments within the church. Weak believers or weak faith, if there's any faith in Jesus at all. And apostasy, which means people will walk away from the faith. So, Paul's being very specific, and he's, he's being he very heavy-handed, but he says the main point of the church is not to be disputeful and split, but actually it's, it's to grow each other in love. And so he says uh, the purpose of the, this commandment to weed is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. All these other outside issues that people are going to try and focus on don't build up believers in their faith, and they don't teach us to love more. But the commandment is so that they'll pull all the junk out and realize what the main thing is, and that is love. We've been loved by Jesus, and so he's called us to go and love. 
Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love your neighbor if, as you love yourself if you are arguing about things that don't matter. You just can't. So believers won't miss out on something that's useful. So how many times have you heard somebody say, I don't want to go to church because I've been to church before, and all it ends up being is a bunch of hypocrites arguing about stuff that I don't even care about? And many times it's because of the arguments that don't matter. It's about the things that are really to be open-handed about. So, what is love? Love is a fruit of the Spirit of God living in a person. And it's, ta- it's a fruit. And here's what it tastes like. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And these are all flavors that are helpful a- as we try to love people. Love for God, and this can be love others as God has loved us. So, the idea is that the purpose of this commandment is so the weeds and the things that can harm us will be taken out of the church, and the things that can be helpful will be left in. And the idea is is that when we focus on Jesus and the things that he taught and his disciples taught and the Old Testament teaches, what we'll end up doing is, is we'll be strengthening our faith and we will grow in purity of eyesight. All those other things, I used to watch a lot of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies, so bear with me on this, but there was one called Bloodsport, and unfortunately I've seen it way too many times because we were big Jean-Claude Van Damme fans. I think I was watching it from age five on. I would not recommend it for your children at any age. But the idea is they, were, they had this big battle going on and you know, Jean-Claude is fighting this Asian dude which is huge and he could like flex, flex his, his pecs and he was like the man. And you're like, he is not going to win this. He's not as big. Uh, yes, he's been kicking a tree for the movie montage when he's working out, but I don't know if that's going to help him fight this dude because the tree didn't kick back and, and all these things are going on. And, and so Jean-Claude Van Damme, because of his training because of his sensei, starts beating the Asian guy. And he's kicking him, and the guy's down, and it's, he's starting, it, you could tell the tide is turning in the fight. There's a little blood coming from the guy's lip, which is the first time I think he actually got a hit in on him, so he kind of broke his confidence. Goliath has gone down, he's gonna, now he's getting ready to cut off his head, you know. And as he's getting ready to fight him, what happens is the guy starts to realize, I'm, I'm going to lose, lose this thing if I don't come up with something. So he did what every shifty guy does in the movies. He grabs down and there's a little dust on the floor and he throws it up in Jean-Claude Van Damme's eyes. What what happens? Jean-Claude has to fight blind. Now, it works out in the movie because he trained fighting blind at one point. So you know how those movies work out. Like he's the main character, so he's going to win. You know, and then there's going to be the scene where there's the song and the girl and all the stuff from the 80s fighting movies. But my point is, any time that the kingdom of God starts making advancement, the opposing kingdom, the kingdom of this world, is going to fight back. And they won't fight back necessarily fair. They're going to throw dust in the air. So bringing up endless genealogies, bringing up arguments about pews and guitars versus organs, you know, they're going to bring up all kinds of stuff that are peripheral, peripheral ideas that don't matter. There's a big word I can't say all in order to distract you from the main thing. And the main thing is love from a pure heart. And that 
Our hearts cannot be pure unless we've been sanctified. If you're saved and Jesus is your Lord and he's, you're his, you recognize that, good. But God cleans every fish that he catches. Not to you know, talk about us being fish, but essentially we're fish. We're not very smart. We need God to do what he needs to do to make us like him. But he cleans us. He sanctifies us. He purifies our lives. And one of the ways he does that is through the teaching of the word of God and the things that Jesus taught. But believers need to be sanctified. We need to be purified in our faith. And one of the ways that God does that is uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this. 1 Peter chapter 1 Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, there's that word again, has begotten us again to a living hope. We've been born again, Peter says. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we're fighting from a place of victory. That's already been procured for us. But then he says in verse five, uh, 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6 is, he, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. This is where we're at today. He says, for this reason, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he's using these trials to purify us. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for theirs, their, excuse me, they will see God. How many of us want to see the Lord? Now, obviously, this means when we're purified, uh, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, we will see God in heaven, but it also means that he's using trials to turn up the heat so that we will be boiled and purified, essentially, in this life so that we can see God here and now. And so... Um, he says, don't uh, lose sight of what really matters. So uh, I think I'll save the rest of it for next week because I've gone a little bit over. But my point is, how many times have you gotten focused on the things that don't matter so much? And because of that, uh, you miss out on the thing that does matter. I struggle with this every week. Every week. I get bogged down at work, and I forget, like, God's in control, and he's using all things to work together for the good of those who love him, and are called according to his purpose. Um, I get bogged down with uh, family troubles or, or our children uh, rebelling against us. And I forget that God's in control. We just need to pray about these things and let him make those changes. And so let me ask you this morning, what are the things in your life that you need to weed? What are the things that are in your life that are distracting you from the thing that matters the most? Uh, Paul's encouragement to Timothy was not to just leave Ephesus and, you know, tune out and so tune in to God because we still live in this world, right? We've got responsibilities. His counsel to Timothy was remain in Ephesus because it's hard and because you're necessary there, but also his encouragement to him was 
Don't give heed to the stuff that distracts you from the thing that matters the most. So I guess that would be my word to you this morning. Don't give heed. Don't spend your time, your energy, your focus on things that don't matter. And then the things that you feel like you're having to pour all your resources into, uh, I'm not going to say don't do them at all. I'm going to say remember that God's going to be the one to supply the strength you need to do those things if he's called you to them. So if he's not giving you the strength, maybe you're not called to it. Uh, but Or at the same time, maybe he's trying to strengthen you. He's trying to make you strong in your faith as you walk through these things with him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter from Paul to Timothy. We thank you that it not only was probably a huge encouragement to him uh, to hear from his father in the faith, but that also we can, um, we can pick up some things, we can glean some things from what he had to say to Timothy. Each one of us has very complicated lives. We live in a day and age where uh, more is expected of us than uh, probably any other generation. And so, Father, um, while our time and our attention and our finances probably in many cases feel like they're spread out beyond uh, what they can be effective with, Lord, even so, we pray that as you have commanded us to do certain things and you've promised us and given us the Holy Spirit to do those certain things, Father, would you help us to do our part and simply trust you and obey you when things are hard, when things are easy, and uh, throughout it all. We want to see Jesus in our everyday lives. And Father, we also know that we are your uh, ministers. We are your sent ones into this world to be your ambassadors so that other people who are not seeking you will be seen and will see you. So, Father, we love you. We thank you for this word. Please, Father, sift through our lives. Cause us to see them for what you see. Remove the weeds. Continue to sow and water the things that you want to produce fruit through. And help us to be faithful, to be filled with your word. It's going to be guiding us through our lives, Lord. And if we don't eat on it, we're starving to death. So, Father, grow us in our trust in you. We love you, and I just thank you for this opportunity to share. In Jesus' name, amen.